0: If you would, take your Bibles and open to Ephesians chapter 5, as well as Colossians chapter 4. We will get to these at the end of the sermon, so open there and then keep your finger, we'll come back to it later. Grateful for Titus speaking last week, on um, Psalm 126, um, continuing the series on the Songs of Ascent. and uh, gave us a lot to think about. We have been looking at the matter of time, seeking to construct a theology, a Christian theology of time. Philosophers and others have tried to come up with clever answers as to what is time. But it is difficult for us as human beings to, in fact, understand it objectively. Um, As I've mentioned, the Chinese proverb, if you want to know what water is, The fish is the last thing to ask, because it's what they swim in, and we swim in time. And so for us to understand time, to define it, I think is very difficult. But we began in the first sermon to sort of establish some things. That time is a creation. It's something that God created. As such, time is a gift. What God has created, his creation, space and time, The material and the invisible are, in fact, gift and are to be received with thanksgiving. The years that God has given us, we should be grateful for. We also saw that God is not limited by time. God is the creator. He stands outside of creation as well as he is inside of creation. He's only bound by his character, his nature. He is not bound by time. Time is something that is created is not infinite. It is limited. But it is also limiting. Uh, In the same way that I can't walk through this post over here, um, I cannot manipulate time. That is, I can't go back in time or go forward in time. It's the stuff of human imagination. But the reality is, time limits us. We are in the present. This is where... We're supposed to be. Memory can take us to the past. Imagination can take us to the future. But we live here in this present moment. And then something that perhaps we had not i mentioned it, but generally we don't think of. Time has been affected by the fall. It has become a burden to human beings. It has become frustrating. But as such, it is something that is redeemable. We examine three dominant views of time, the cyclical, in which time is an ever-moving wheel but it never goes anywhere, the covenantal, which tells us that time and history have meaning, meaning that God gives it, and then the chronological, which is the modern view. And the crucial difference between the covenantal and the chronological is what gives things meaning. In the chronological, we are the ones who decide if an event is important. We decide if a person is important, if a choice is important, if it has meaning. In the covenantal, it is God who assigns meaning. and God as the creator should know better than us. But in rebellion, I think we have turned away from that. We see meaning as what human beings say it is. Today, I want to talk about the distortions of time, or perhaps we might say the abuses of time. Because if time is a creation, then the principles that apply for us dealing with the material creation, I think can be applied to our approach or our use of time as well. If we think of creation, the trees, the animals and all that, is something for us to use, something that's utilitarian, I think we will end up having the same view of time. And if we think that creation is something for us to use, then we will not take care of creation as we are supposed to. God has commissioned us to take care of his creation where he put us. I would argue that we can abuse time in the same way that we abuse the environment. We'll look at that today. The Abuses, the Distortions of Time. Again, I want to mention uh, two authors and their books that have been of great help. Oz Guinness's book, Carpe Diem Redeemed, and then Alexander Smeman's For the Life of the World. He has a chapter there called The Time of Mission. I want to add a third book to this, and that's Jacques Lille's book. I mentioned it in the sermon a couple weeks ago, uh, Presence in the Modern World. There's a new translation out by Lisa Richman. Uh, Originally, this was written in French in 1948. Um, It is as insightful today as it was back then. We live in a culture that privileges the present over the past. And the future is imagined to either be utopian or dystopian. Uh, And if you think of all the uh, movies or TV series, The Walking Dead... Uh, Hunger Games, Divergent, all these things project a very dystopian, a very difficult, a very dark view of the future. But the present is always seen as wonderful. It's privileged. But as we begin here, looking at the abuses of time, let's establish that the past, the present, and the future should never be divided. We speak of that way because it helps us to deal with it. But Oz Guinness writes in his book, the three faces of time are one and indivisible. They are one before God. And they are far more intertwined and omnipresent in our lives than we often realize. We like to imagine that the future is somewhat distant and the past is also remote. But in fact, there is this continuum where God has put us. Certainly, there is a time in which the past is no longer. And the future is not yet. But we must be careful, we must take care. As one writer has noted, the past may be no longer, but it is still present. And the future is not yet, but it is already present, whether through our hopes, visions, excitement, anxieties, or fears. God's people, that's us today, should appreciate the past, the present, and the future equally when it is appropriate. And we should guard our relationship to each of these three with vigilance and care. But we live in a world in which these three are, in fact, abused. They are distorted. I'll spend the most time on the distortion of the past, uh, the least on the distortion of the future, uh, but bear with me if you would. One finds in Scripture, more in the Old Testament, 182 times verses 50 in the New Testament, The idea of remembering. The command to remember. Do not forget. It's not to say that it's an Old Testament thing versus a New Testament matter. In fact, we have just had communion, which is a call to remember. We proclaim his death until he comes. We do this in remembrance of him. But as we saw in the series on memory, remembering is much more than recall. What is important is for those who remember the past, is the way that we respond to it. Our memory of the past, because we're fallen, may in fact be quite faulty. Um, that when we recall things, we may not get things right, which is one of the wonderful things about being married, because together you share a memory and you can correct each other like, no, no, this is what happened. Um, family reunions are great for that because you can talk about the past. Um But there is a huge difference between living with the past, remembering, and living in the past. The first one is positive and life-giving, as you live with the past. The second is, I think, nostalgia, and actually can be negative and life-threatening. Again, quoting Oz Guinness, Today, a key way in which modern people distort the past or abuse the past is through victimhood and hate. The Enlightenment envisioned a more advanced humanity, that as things would, you know, humanity would just progress and progress and progress. And yet what we've seen is that there's still evil, there's still injustice, there's still suffering in the modern world. And sometimes it's in individual instances, but sometimes it's on a global scale. The world is filled with victims. The air is heavy with their cries, and the ground is soaked with their blood and their tears. And we must do something about it. We must be moved, I think, with the passion that God feels for justice, for those who are captives, those who are bullied, those who are oppressed. The world is filled. It is overwhelmed, according to Guinness. With people who have been wounded grievously, deeply, either through the actions of some people or the apathy of others, not reaching out to help them. Their blood cries out to heaven and God hears it. Having said that, to be a victim, to respond through victimhood, to play the victim card are quite different matters. What we find is that those who perceive themselves as victims, who respond as portraying themselves as victims, victims end up being paralyzed as victims. They paralyze themselves by their own description. And why is that? It is because of their distorted view of the past. Those who want to use the past, something bad happened to me, I'm a victim of something that happened maybe recently, maybe in the distant past, but I am a victim of those things, end up using it as as almost a cudgel, something to beat on people. It is almost a weapon of power to say, look at me, I'm a victim. You have to do something for me. But in reality, they end up prisoners to the past, and they are never free. In many ways, they're not living in the present, they're living in the past. This is an active, I'm sorry, a passive response to the past. Something happened to me, I'm a victim. A more active response to this is, in fact, hatred. Let's be clear. I'm not in any way discounting that people have been mistreated, have been abused, have had terrible things happen to them. But if the person who is the victim responds with hatred, then in fact, the victim turned hater only perpetuates the situation, the problem. Hate spreads the malice, and it comes to infect both sides, the one who did wrong and the one who was wronged. But it is the victim, the one who is wrong, who is doubly so, because first of all, they were victimized by the hateful, hateful thing that was done to them. But then they become a victim of their own hatred. They are a prisoner now because they seem to be, not be able to do anything but hate. That is the active response to the passive, look at me, I'm a victim. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs wrote, A people driven by hate are not cannot be free. To be free, you have to let go of hate. Victim playing perpetuates victimhood, and hatred corrupts the hater. So what is the answer to this abuse of the past? In a word, forgiveness. Both attitudes of victimhood and hatred keep the past alive, and maintain its poison. The evil thing that was done there, in a sense, almost remains alive. Because the victim says, look what happened to me. This terrible thing happened to me. This terrible thing, And it keeps it alive. Or if someone responds in hatred, they're hating, something, hating someone for something that was done in the past. It keeps the past going, which is not meant to be because we are now in the present. If you keep the past alive and maintain its poison, you cannot be free. It is freedom, it is forgiveness, I'm sorry, that frees the victim and cuts off hatred and allows the victim to be free. The past is cut off forever. When you think about it, the Israelites had plenty of reason to hate the Egyptians. Four centuries of being enslaved, the cruelty, the oppression. The killing of their babies. And yet Moses told them, do not abhor an Egyptian, don't hate an Egyptian, because you lived as an alien or sojourner in his country. Yeah, as slaves, Moses, what are you saying? We were sojourners in Egypt? Yes, you were. And if you hate an Egyptian because of something that happened, perhaps not even to you, but your father, your grandfather, great-grandfather, you perpetuate that. No, you are not to hate them. Hatred is not the answer. Jesus tells us, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor, do good to those who hate you and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who persecute you. Freed by God through the Exodus, the Israelites are not to hate the Egyptians. They're called to be a community of free people and people who hate are not free. In the New Testament, we are freed from the slavery of sin and we are not to be people of hatred. We are to be free people. If you pursue justice with hatred, This will only lead to more evil and even even greater injustice. To be reconciling and restorative, justice must be pursued with an eye to the possibility of genuine repentance, genuine forgiveness, genuine reconciliation. The past is always present. Certainly it's not dead. But forgiveness can, in fact, take the poison out of the past. So we're not poisoned by it, if you wish. We are not weakened by it. As a result, the past can no longer kill the present, but in fact sets it free and allows it to move toward the future. It can be argued for this to happen, there has to be repentance, a change of thinking, that someone has to admit that they did wrong, they have to confess that they did wrong, And then they have to say, I'm not going to do it anymore. Yes, that's that's right. That's all well and good. But what if the person who wronged you does not say they're sorry? What if they don't repent? What if, in fact, there's a good possibility that they're going to do it to you again? We are called to forgive anyway. And we hear the words of Jesus on the cross Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Let's be clear. Evil and wrong deeds are nothing. They will never be anything but evil and wrong deeds. We are not to trying to diminish them in any way. They need to be identified. They need to be addressed. What you did to me was wrong. What this person did to this other person was wrong. What this nation did to another nation was wrong. But we can, in fact, keep it from, like yeast, you know, growing and growing and growing. We can contain it in two significant ways. First of all, on the part of the wrongdoer, the person who did something wrong. If he or she repents, then they can look back later in time at what they have done, and they can say, you know, what I did was wrong. They can consider their motives and think, yeah, I I did that for the wrong reason. What they did is still there. Okay? What they did is still there. It's, it, you can't undo it. Okay? But they can, in fact, begin to repent. What's done is done and can't be undone. But the intent can be dealt with. If someone did something horrible out of hatred, out of anger, you could say, I need to deal with my ha- anger and with my hatred. One who repents and confesses goes on the record against himself or herself. What I did was wrong, and my motives were wrong. Think a moment. Think over your past. Would you not agree that there are many words we have spoken we wish we could take back? Sometimes there are deeds that we have done from which we could never recover. The damage has been done. In the words of Oz Guinness in his book, the words, the deeds, and the damage are done, done, done. So it would seem that we are doomed. That we are going to suffer some type of karmic retribution down the line. Our fate has been sealed. We did this terrible thing and therefore we are going to suffer the consequences. No. We are to repent. There is to be forgiveness. And we are given freedom. We may imagine that our present and our future are, in fact, determined by the past. I did something bad ten years ago, and I'm going to suffer the consequences as a result. This seems natural. This seems logical. Um, Inevitable, if you wish. But this can, in fact, be canceled or significantly reversed through repentance and forgiveness. Hannah Arendt, in her book, The Human Condition, explored the connection between time and forgiveness. She said, forgiveness is the only reaction which does not merely react, but acts anew and unexpectedly. Unexpectedly unconditioned by the act which provoked it and therefore freeing it from its consequences, both the one who forgives and the one who is forgiven. In other words, forgiveness is, it is a response. It is a reaction, if you wish, when something, someone has done something wrong. But it's not a natural thing. It is a new action. And both the one who has done wrong and the one who forgives are now set free. When forgiveness breaks into the story, the cycle of revenge and retaliation is broken. So this is one way where we can mitigate the damage from our actions and our words in the past. The second thing that time can do in restoring all this is the deeds that we have done in the past we may come to see that God in his grace has used that for good. It's not to say what we did was okay. It's like, well, no, God used it for good, so it was okay. No, what was done was wrong, it was evil. There needs to be confession, there needs to be forgiveness. But there can also be a a time when we look back and say, by the grace of God, it brought me to where I am today. You see, hindsight is not only twenty-twenty; it often reveals that there are silver linings to even the darkest clouds. Consider the story of Joseph. His brothers were jealous of him. They plotted to kill him. Instead, they sold him into slavery. He was a slave in Egypt. He was uh, lied about by his master's wife. He ended up in prison. His father, almost died of a broken heart. Joseph was his favorite, which wasn't the right thing. But, And when he was told that he was dead, he was bereft. Well, you know the story. Joseph went to Egypt. He was able to interpret the dreams of Pharaoh. They were able to survive the famine. And he brought his family down from Canaan, and they survived as well. Well, after Jacob died, the brothers were afraid that now Joseph was going to get his revenge. And he says to them, you intended to harm me. That is, you meant evil against me. We're not gonna, we're not gonna whitewash that. You, you meant to hurt me. Okay? But God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Joseph does not minimize what his brothers did but he's able to see God's providence in the whole matter. In a world in which we live, which seeks justice in terms of revenge, the secular pursuit of justice is often driven by resentment and hatred. We must recognize that it is truth, repentance, forgiveness, and reconciliation which keeps the past as the past. And it creates an open future of genuine second chances. Because we do not play the victim card or live lives of hatred. The secular pursuit of justice rarely offers such options. There is no forgiveness. There is no repentance. There is only retribution. Okay. That is distorting or abusing the past. What about the present? In the modern age, that's where we are right now, the present is magnified at the expense of both the past and the future. The past doesn't count, and we don't know if there is going to be a future, so it's all about the present right now. And one of the ways that we see this is what Guinness calls generationalism, um, which is a way of constantly thinking in terms of distinct generations. Now, in the past, generation was considered to be the time between uh, when a family came together, a husband and wife, um, and their time together, and then they have a child, and when the child, in a sense, takes over, and then he or she has their children, that's another generation, that's how people thought of generations. And Herodotus, famous Greek historian, described a generation as about 33 years, plus or minus, which meant that there were three or four generations per century. Um, when the Enlightenment came along, biology is set aside and it becomes all about culture. So, a generation is not seen in terms of the family, you know, with parents and children and, and grandchildren and so on. It's about the culture. Um, and in the Enlightenment, the new and the young are elevated as being better and more important. The elders, the parents, are discounted. And I think that's why it's about culture and no longer about family. In the modern era, time is fed up. So if you consider the 20th century, we have the lost generation, that's post-World War I, the greatest generation of World War II, the silent generation, which is post-World War II, the baby boomers, Generation X, Generation Y, or the millennials, and then Generation Z. Seven generations in one century. But this isn't about families. This isn't about biology. This is about culture. And as a result, we begin to have these distinct groups within the present. Again, he calls it generationalism. Let me give you a partial list of how generation is now used. Now used as a key to describing identity, I'm a child of the '60s. He's a baby boomer. She's a millennial. Becomes a new form of tribal identity. Secondly, generation becomes a new form of relativism. In my generation, this is what we think is right. Uh, you don't understand. You're not from my generation. And again, not an age group per se, but a cultural group. Thirdly, generation becomes a reinforcement of the crisis of authority and a repudiation of the wisdom of experience. Previous generation, that culture is bad, this, the new, is better, and so we will reject any wisdom that they might in fact have. Fourthly, generationalism helps to undermine wider and longer frames of responsibility and solidarity. So, since this abuse of the present thinks only about the present in terms of a cultural generation, we have deficit spending. Let our kids pay for it. Our grandkids pay for the deficit. You have environmental degradation. Let them deal with it. You have generational murder. It's called abortion. You have the social uh, social security crisis. It's generational war. Why should the younger generation pay for the older generation to stay alive? And then there is the question, what has the future ever done for us? Why should I be concerned about the future? What has it ever done for us? Dostoevsky wrote, this is over a century and a half ago, Why should I love my neighbor or posterity, which I shall never see, which will know nothing about me, And which in turn will disappear without leaving any traces or memories. In other words, why should I care about the future? They'll never know who I am. I won't know who they are. Why should I care? Generationalism, I think, can be summed up as tyranny of the now. By the way, if you remember the chronological vision of time, Precision, pressure. Yeah, that's what generationalism is. Fifthly, generationalism adds to the breakdown of living tradition and sustainability. G.K. Chesterton said, Tradition, as the living faith of the dead, becomes the dead faith of the living. In other words, the faith of our fathers, those who came before us. They're dead, but their faith lives on. Now, in the present moment, that's a dead faith in this living generation. Sixthly, generationalism parallels radical modern individualism. It's all about me and me and me. It also reinforces this naive view of the future and a naive view of human nature that we're going to have utopia down the road. John Donne said that no man is an island Entire of itself. If we could rephrase that, we should say, no generation is an island. Entire of itself. If nothing else, I mean, this people should know better than this. If nothing else, they should remember that the actions of previous generations have affected this current generation. Children who have been abused should recognize that the past, in fact, does affect The present, you can't just live in an insular, say, I'm of this generation. And then lastly, generationalism treats the long term and the far off as non-existent and unworthy of consideration. Why should I think about 10 years, 20 years, 50 years down the road? Listen to what the Lord said to Moses from the burning bush. God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. The name by which I am to be remembered from generation to generation. Abraham was more than 500, 600 years earlier. But the God of Abraham is their God and will be the God of their children and their grandchildren and so on. At renewing the covenant as they reach the end of the wilderness experience and they're getting ready to go into the promised land. Moses says, I am making this covenant with its oath, not only for you who are standing here with us today in the presence of the Lord, our God, but also with those who are not here today. Our descendants can't simply think of yourself or your own cultural generation. When Nebuchadnezzar returned to his senses after living like an animal, how great are his signs. That's God. How mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation The beginning of Moses' psalm, Psalm 90. Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. This is to say that this abuse of the present, this generationalism, in fact, runs counter to what we find in scripture. Who we know God to be. And the biblical view of generations as each generation will walk almost as a parade before the face of God. It is a distortion of the present. And then there's the distortion, the abuse of the future. And this will be brief because we've already looked at the matter of progressivism in the second sermon in this series. It begins with the naive view that everything is just going to get better and better and better, that human nature will just improve, improve, improve. Um, It will be constant. It will be automatic. It will be self-evident. And so there is a belief that the newer must be truer and The latest must be the greatest. Those who came before us, that that must be inferior. They're below us in the scale of things as we're going and getting better and better. But also, it is seen as inferior because it isn't the same way we think. And we're better than them, and so we discard what they have to say. It all starts, all these abuses start with a distorted understanding of time. The question is, how did we get here? Why do people today think that way? Why do they abuse the past with victimhood and and hatred? Why do they abuse the present with this idea of generationalism, this tyranny of the now? Why do they abuse the future with their views of progressivism? I would say it's our fault. The church is at fault. I will start to now, briefly, and continue next Sunday to look at where the church messed up and why the world thinks the way that it does today. I mentioned Jacques Lowell's book, Presence in the Modern World, uh, published in 48, 1948. That's after World War II. It was a call to the church to do the work of reconstruction, not as the world was doing it, but as the church should. He said that the church should, first of all, realize the world's true condition, that it is in rebellion against God. And then we should seek after and preach the order of God, preach the word of God. And in his words, this can lead to the idea of redeeming the time. If you look in your Bibles at Ephesians chapter five, um, we use the NIV here, but I'll be reading from the King James, which I'll explain why in a few moments. But Ephesians five verses 15, 16 and 17. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Wherefore, be not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. And then in Colossians chapter four, verses five and six, walk in wisdom toward those or them that are without redeeming the time Let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer every man. The reason I use the King James is because the NIV, I think, misses the point here. It's making the most of every opportunity, which isn't what what Paul says. I'm, I'm not a Greek scholar, but he uses two words here. The first one is kairos. Remember kairos from the first sermon? Versus chronos. Kairos says that every moment has significance. That's the word he uses for time. And the word for redeem is the word he uses throughout his epistles for what Jesus has done for us. That Jesus has redeemed us from the curse of the law. So it is literally redeeming time. And for the life of me, I'm not sure why they did it that way. Elo sees Paul as saying that time is in fact enslaved. As we've seen, it's as a result of the fall. It needs to be redeemed. It needs to be set free. And This all fits in with the idea of time as creation, created by God being in a fallen state due to the sin of Adam and Eve. It is both enslaved and enslaving. As Elul sees it, there's a threefold progression here. And if you look at either the passage in Ephesians or in Colossians, there's first of all, how we are to live, our conduct, our ethics. That is to say, we are to walk carefully, circumspectly. Secondly, we are to redeem the time. And then thirdly, What we say or our preaching, our knowledge of God's will. It is the center issue, redeeming the time, that is the pivot for both our conduct and understanding and preaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. But I think the church has lost this, they've lost sight of the fact that we are to redeem time. Our view of time is much more chronological, I think, than it is covenantal. We see the source of meaning as coming from us. We determine whether or not we are successful, whether or not we are happy, whether or not we have done great things. Rather than recognizing that one day we will stand before God. And so the distortions that we've been talking about, abusing the past, abusing the present, abusing the future. Let's not say those people out there, the church is guilty of this. Because we have not embraced the biblical view of time. If we are to redeem the time, as Paul tells us, I think we need to begin by redeeming our vision of time as God intends. I think our, our vision of time, our view of time, is very secular. It's very modern. It's not biblical. So we need to get back on track and then begin the work of redeeming the time. In Malcolm Gladwell's book, uh, David and Goliath, Underdogs, Misfits, and the Art of Battling Giants, he relates, he relates how two families dealt with senseless tragedies. In each case, the murder of a teenage daughter. Mike Reynolds up in Fresno, uh, his 18-year-old daughter had, was coming back from a wedding, and as she was getting into a car, uh, two recently revi- uh, released uh, convicts uh, who were meth addicts, Uh, tried to steal her purse, she resisted, and one of them shot her in the head and killed her. And what was his response? Mike Reynolds led the initiative to the three strikes law, three felonies, and you're in prison for the rest of your life. This happened in 1992, and Malcolm Gladwell interviewed him several decades later. And he said he was still... He still carried the anger. It is as though it just happened the day before. That Reynolds was still consumed by this anger. And dare I say, hatred. Gladwell wanted to know, is there an alternative? Is this the only response to tragedy? And then he heard about a woman in Canada, Wilma uh, Dirksen, a Mennonite woman, and Gladwell, interestingly enough, was raised as a Mennonite. Her 13-year-old daughter disappeared one day, uh, going to school. I think she was going to school or going to the store. Her body was found seven weeks later, a quarter of a mile from the house in the shed. She was tied up, her hands and her feet. She had frozen to death. She was killed by a sexual predator. Before they even found her daughter, a reporter asked how do you feel about what's happened? What is your response? And Wilma responded, we would like to know who the person or persons are so we could share, hopefully, a love that seems to be missing in these people's lives. There are other stories like this, a similar story in Pennsylvania, in Amish country, in which a five-year-old boy was uh, struck and critically injured by a speeding car driven by a drunk teenager. The mother of the five-year-old came up to the police cruiser where the teenager was sitting in the back seat and she asked to speak to the investigating officer. She said, please take care of the boy. He thought she was talking about her five-year-old. He said, the ambulance people and doctor will do the best they can. It's in God's hands. She pointed to the suspect in the car. I mean the driver. We forgive him. This is a Christian view of of time. This does not hold on. I'm a victim. Look at what this person has done to my family. This is not holding on to hatred. This is saying, we forgive this boy for what he has done and we are concerned for him. It's a clear view of things. It's a biblical view of time and history. No victimhood. No hatred. Were these things that were done horrible? Absolutely. I cannot imagine what Wilma Dirksen went through. Waiting Seven weeks to know what happened to her daughter and then finding out what in fact did happen to her. And the man who did this was not caught until 20 years later. But her answer, as with the Amish mother, was forgiveness. And this is redeeming time. Rather than allowing the poison of the past to live a strong life in our lives in the present, there is to be forgiveness and letting it go. If we as God's people don't have a right view, redeeming the time, if we abuse the past, if we abuse the present, if we abuse the future, why should we expect those outside to have a correct view of time? The gift that God has given us. One more thing about forgiveness and the distortion of the past. I would argue that it is not only forgiving others for the terrible things they have done. It involves forgiving ourselves. And I would argue that's much harder than forgiving others. Because somehow we have a distorted view of ourselves. How could I have done that? Why did I do that? And we hang on to it in a form of self-hatred. We do not forgive ourselves. God has forgiven us. But in a distorted and abuse of the past, we hang on to it. Titus quoted Snoop Dogg. Um, I'll quote from Pearl Jam. their song called Present Tense. I'll just read you some of the lines. You can spend your, your time alone Redigesting past regrets. Or you can come to terms and realize you're the only one who can forgive yourself. It makes much more sense to live in the present tense. The second time they come to this chorus, if you wish, you're the only one who cannot forgive yourself. You're redigesting past regrets. You don't forgive yourself. It's better to forgive yourself. It makes much more sense to live in the present tense. And as God's people, we should lead the way. We should redeem time. And the the fact that the world is so messed up in its perception of time, that's on us. That's on us. Those that came before us. Um, Let's not beat ourselves up. Okay. Let's confess. And by God's grace, learn to do the right thing, to have the right view of time and to redeem the time as God has called us to do. Let's pray together. Our Father, we live in a time in which time seems to be going so fast. But to sit down and take the time to consider time itself. A biblical view, one would almost say, I don't have the time to do that. But In the same way that we are to redeem our families, creation, we are also to redeem time. And we need to recognize how infected we are by the surrounding culture which in many ways is a result of previous generations of our brothers and sisters who've had a faulty view of time. May we not beat them up or beat ourselves up for our failures, but confess our failure, forgive those who have come before us, and by your grace have a biblical view of time. In many cases, the forgiveness is not for others, but for ourselves. When we think of the things that we have done, the things we have said, and we relive them over and over again, allowing that poison to infect our minds. By your grace, may we forgive ourselves. You've already forgiven us. Why are we hanging on to those things? May we forgive those who have wronged us. Even if they don't think they've wronged us, even if they will not confess, they will not admit, we should not be prisoners to the past because of other people's evil deeds. In this present time, may we have a much more holistic view of society instead of dividing up into tribes of different generations May we love our neighbors as ourselves. By your Spirit, cause us to think on these things in the days to come. Thank you for bringing us together today to worship you in spirit and in truth. We look forward to the coming week, which you've already set up ahead of time. But you'll be with us every step of the way. We are grateful for Jason and Gwen, their 10th anniversary coming up, and Gwen's mom's 75th birthday. All wonderful reminders of your grace. So may your grace and your spirit go with us as we leave this place today. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.